As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm Christy Penley, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Matt and Ben. Hey, hey guys. guys. Hey, CP. C-Dog. C-Dog. C- I know. Yeah. Our listeners need to know. I, I like to change my name. Do you, guys, do you guys, like, when you go through a drive-thru or something and people ask you, what's your name? Do you, do you give them your real name? Uh, I, most oh, of the time wow. I do. Yeah, most of the time around. I do, too. Do you I not? I do not. I do not. And then yeah. they said C-Dog, uh, for those of you who are listening, because I put C-Dog as my name instead of Christy Penley. And yeah. anyway, I realize I do that a lot, going through Chick-fil-A. Yeah. They're like, what's your name? I'm like, Bambi. And then my kids are like, Mom, what are you doing? Anyway. Yeah. What's going if, on? If I um, did that, my daughter would laugh, and my son would go, he's lying. That's, not, that's his not his name. name. He's that's lying. not his name. <laughs> um, an- another funny thing about this. So my wife, her name is Sharon, um, yeah. and she, my wife doesn't have like a. She doesn't have a speech impediment. She doesn't have an accent. She's fairly, you know, right down the middle in terms of, you know, just speaks clearly. Has all her teeth, and so. Um, <laughs> Lots to commend about my wife. But when we go through drive-thrus, this is a standing joke in our church, she gets called everything but Sharon. And And the little name on her drink is always like Sarah, like Shannon, Shannon. Shannon. And the one that that has happened more than once that is like perplexing is that she gets called Sharn. Sharn. Just leave the O out. Oh my goodness! And so listen. So then, like, she tells she tells everybody at our church that, and so like Ben and his wife and our other co-rector Spencer and his wife, they just basically call Sharon Sharn now, <laughs> like in text. Yeah. It's like yeah. a thing. Sharn. So we're yeah. we're sitting in bed the other night, and uh, she's like, a message comes through, and she goes, "Can I just say something? <laughs> you know, and you've been tw- married twenty years. You're you just kind of go, yeah, sure. <laughs> and she goes, I really can't stand Sharn." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, poor Sharon. I was like, honey, honey, it's kind of like they're know. just joking with you because it's so ridiculous. And she goes, no, I get it. I get why I should think it's funny. I just do not like it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love her. That's yeah. amazing. Uh, that's really <laughs> anyway, funny. anyway. Well, today I'm excited. Um, Matt and I got the opportunity to talk to Danae Pierre. And um, man, what a dynamite woman. Yes. Um, she's just, she's got, a, I have a lot to learn from her. Yeah. Um, but she wrote a book called Healing Prayer and Meditations for Resisting a Violent World. Mm. And um, 
and I'm excited to yeah. for you guys to hear. Um, but this isn't just going to be on this podcast, Ben, right? This is also going to be um, on something else. Can you tell us about that? Oh, you mean the date today? Oh, the what date we're doing here today? No, no, no. Oh, like, isn't isn't you said it was going to be on something else? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> No, what I, what I was saying, we just had a little chat before we hit record here. What I was saying is that today is Candlemas. Oh, today is Candlemas. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be on any other kind of platform. No, that's okay. I we're think releasing... they're going to need to edit that piece out. Yeah, yeah. We don't edit anything. We don't that's edit the beauty anything, of this is our happening. podcast. It's a glorious, so, whatever happens is glorious. Yeah. Anyway, today it's, a, it's an obscure liturgical holiday that I really have enjoyed the last few years, and we're releasing this podcast episode on Candlemas. It's the Feast of the Presentation of Jesus. I'm excited. Tonight, our church is going to gather outdoors, weather permitting, but uh, we're going to try to do it no matter what, um, for the blessing of candles and uh, in a, a brief communion service. So anyway, if you want to look that up, just look up Candlemas. Yeah. I, I feel like I do need to, and I work at an Anglican church, so I'm... <laughs> it is pretty obscure. Yeah, like, yeah. but I wish I was in Indiana. I could come. Yeah, you could. Yeah. It's February 2nd every year, which is, is it also Groundhog Day? Oh, no. I, I think Groundhog Day is February, I don't know, February 1, but I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. I've been wrong about some stuff already on this, on this podcast. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. Well, anyway, on that note, let's get into note. the interview okay. and right. hear from Danae. <laughs> Danae Pierre, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, Christy and I are here with Danae, who lives in Arizona. She is the executive director of Surge Network and has written a book of meditative prayers. I'll let her describe uh, the book. Uh, But first, Danae, anything else we need to know about you, what what you do and what what you spend your time doing? Sure. Yeah. Well, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So I was born and raised here. Um, and my husband and I planted a multi-ethnic church in downtown Phoenix. So that's a lot of what we do with our time. And then, um, yeah, serve a network of churches here in Arizona. So it's um, about yeah, a bunch of different pastors and church leaders um, focused on reconciliation and equipping our church members for mission in the city and formation. Um, and then I work with church planters in different cities, uh, with city to city North America. So yes, yeah. yes, great. Um, can I ask you about your multi ethnic church? Yeah, absolutely. I I hear that a lot. We yeah. Christy and I hear that a lot, and it means different things to different people. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean for you? Yeah. Well, we planted. So let's see, maybe fifteen years ago, at the kind of maybe where a lot of the conversations were beginning to emerge on multi ethnicity. We planted, um, my husband's African-American, came out from New York and was doing a residency at a predominantly white church short term with intention to go back. And we got this building donated to us in downtown Phoenix. So um, jumped in, very idealistic, uh, did a lot of the things that you do to start multi-ethnic churches um, and really had, yeah, we had a really interesting journey the first seven or eight years of, I, I think, growing in diversity but not necessarily reconciliation. And so when Trayvon Martin Hmm. uh, was murdered in the trial, that was kind of the first, I think, like exposure of, oh, we are colorful, but we're not reconciled. And we were probably Mm -hmm. maybe like uh, 40%, uh, we're probably like 60% white white at that point. Um, So that kind of went into this whole season leading up through really the emergence of Black Lives Matter and um, the 2016 election where we um, just had a lot of pain as a church. We ended up having about 100 church members, mostly white, leave over time. And we went from being a multi-ethnic staff to an all-black and two Latinos Um, and, and then did a lot of work around like what does it mean to live into reconciliation? And so this last four years has actually been really, really transformative in our, in our lives and our marriage and our church family. And um, we're more ethnically diverse than before, but also really have a lot more categories around what it means to live into reconciliation together. Hmm. 
And what is what does that look like, like on a daily basis for you as you're leading this church? Um, tell me, like practically, how does that play out? Yes. Well, we've done well. You know, some of it has just been being really intentional and talking about, um, you know, how does our discipleship show up? Discipleship show up in things like racism and justice and centering the margins. Um, what does it mean to really be a, a leadership team? So not just having a pastor-led church, but really um, what we realized was so much of what's going to allow us to be a healthy multi-ethnic church is really activating all God's people and their different strengths and nice. um, and working together. Because and, and so much of what's exposed of our egos and our brokenness and our stories and trying to do that is also what's healed in that process. And, and a lot of it is developing the muscles of reconciliation and that happens across gender, um, across theological, like really like big theological differences. And then of course, culture, socioeconomics. Um, so we do, I mean, meal meals is really big. Um, when COVID happened, we reorganized our whole church into triads, fam- like family units of three, and did a lot of intentional practices around uh, community and mission together. Uh, um, and so just, yeah, really trying to, to we, we're really kind of flipping on it, at least to maybe how we were trained from being like predominantly, you know, you have a few leaders doing everything to like, how are we really repositioning leaders to um, see it? everyone participating in mission in ways that they are gifted to or called like to family. Like yeah, family. Fam- yeah. Much more family. family. Yes. Family that, yeah, that's probably the other big thing is it's, we emphasize family and, mm-hmm. um, and having a messy Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, of people very, very different from each other. What are the things that we unite around and what are the things that we actually, because we love each other, you get to bring that part of who you are here, even if we don't, fully align and how do we hold space for each other in that? Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I hear you referring to the election in 2016 mm-hmm. as like a pivotal moment, a seminal moment for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. I wonder if you could just say more about, um, it's not that it's not that the election of Donald Trump caused something, but it like revealed something that had always been there. Mm-hmm. How did that come out in your community and how have you had to rectify it? Reckon with that. Yeah, I think it was the the two years leading up to the election. So it really was the emergence of Black Lives Matter that we began to have real serious, I mean, all out, like division, anger, fights, Facebook craziness, um, accusations. It was just, we were, um, we were not the, we, we was just, it was a very, lots of ugliness that was just all of a sudden pouring out of us. And um, I think what happened, and then, and then, and so all of 2016 was very challenging. And then the day after the election, when Trump won, and a lot of conservative church members celebrated and kind of felt this freedom to be more, even more bold, um, there was just a lot of hurt and wounding. And so, yes, um, you know, we had people meet with my husband and I. Um, who said, I came to this church because of diversity and I'm leaving because of diversity. It's just too hard. Or I just don't feel comfortable having a black pastor. Um, And so uh, we had the N word written on our front door. Um, We had, I mean, it was just a really, that kind of all, all the turmoil surrounding it was pretty intense. And so I think, um, I think what we realized was we, um, we then though, I think became a place that, we're at this, like, we're either going to be all in and talk about explicitly on racism and reconciliation and address it. Um, or we're not like, it's, it's just, there's, we're going to create, there's no way to create a healing space for people of color without being all in. And so we're not going to survive. So we might shrink as a church, but we're going to become healthier. And so we did shrink. And I, and I think then it was a real season of our own, I'll say my own, um, our, the process of confession of uh, when you feel like you've been wronged and, and I, and maybe like on paper you have, like you're on the side of justice, you're on the side of um, fighting for, for things that you really believe that God's calling the church to be um, how easy it is for self-righteousness to creep in and to get really prideful about it. And so then learning how to allow the spirit to, especially with our leaders of color. And I think it's easier for us because we were, it was all leaders of color that were left 
um, to say, okay, we need to lead in repentance. And actually, you know, the days following the election, we met with several of our African-American and Latino leaders and said, we know that you're the last, you're the last people that need to be um, on paper moving towards and loving our church members, but we actually really need the maturity and spiritual strength of those of us who've already done this before um, to kind of be more committed and create space for reconciliation. And it ended up being a really powerful, yeah, we, we've just learned so much of, of how, how to do this work together. Um, I think it's created a closer knit family, but it's also given us more um, arms into our, our neighborhood. So I think it's also made us more active in partnering with um, people in our city. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful, Danae. I, I, I'm thinking about my church that's uh, mostly white. <clears throat> we have uh, a little bit of diversity, but uh, the center of our leadership team is is all white. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, when we changed our confession of sin uh, in the spring around um, the time George Floyd was killed, and we um, we we named as a white church our complicity and culpability and systemic racism. Uh, it that really uh, bothered some of the people in our church. It created it revealed this deep rift about how diff- how we see sin, how we talk about what's wrong with the world. Even in even the gospel we proclaim that we think will actually fix what's wrong with the world. Yeah. Um, a similar thing happened. We had this uh, chat kind of in our that we we share in our church a group me chat where we kind of share prayer requests and make announcements and things like that and you know anytime you're sharing a chat with there's probably 60 or 70 people on there there's unofficial house rules you know and people sort of play by the rules um <clears throat> uh you know you, you don't try to start your multi-level marketing scheme on the church chat like so most people understand this yeah. um but election night yeah. um maybe it's a day I, when, whenever it was clear no, I think it was election night when that that song trended on iTunes, the mm. F Donald Trump song. Mm. Do you remember this? Do you remember I, this song? I, I didn't hear it now. Okay, it was like this. It it got like eight million downloads wow. in like two hours. Wow. And uh, the some of the black people in our church posted a video singing F Donald Trump along to the song and put it on Group Me. And just noticing, like I've had a dozen dozen conversations with white people in our church about how they reacted to that video and the things that it sort of, the reverberations and the revealing of the lack of justice maybe and the lack of peace that exists in our body. And so I, I'm reflecting on the fact that whatever moment we call this, whatever whatever liminal space we're in, I don't think it's causing things, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. It's, it's excavating things. Mm-hmm. And even like a black light shines on invisible ink. Mm. It's like a it's like a black light that shows something that's always been there and we just didn't have the 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 eyes to see it. Yeah. And I think your testimony about how your church responded to what's happening, I mean it's you know, I, I wouldn't wish racial injustice and the um I wouldn't wish an intensification of racial injustice on anyone. Yeah. But but what your testimony is is that that God is sovereign in the midst of that, and mm-hmm. the great beauty and goodness that come out of that is sometimes um, more beautiful than we could imagine on the front end when people are writing slurs on our front door. Yeah. 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 And I think that I I think I like the image of ink revealing because I think it it is very exposing, and that's one of the things that we've reflected on a lot is. Um, there's something about, you know, if this isn't new, right? Like it's like every generation, the church in America has been confronted with our separation, our racism, the divisions, how connected it is to our structures and our, and our systems. Um, and there are people and attempts to move forward and change. And then consistently white leaders give up eight to eight four to 10 years in, depending on which season of American history we're in. Um, There's burnout, exhaustion, violence sometimes um, from leaders who stay in, suicide, uh, murders, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've just seen this, this, this theme play out throughout American history. 
And then everyone kind of goes back to their own silos. And so I think that's one of the things we realized both with our church, but then with Surge, as we started working with pastors across the city, is there has to be something that God is doing if we're going to be active and engaged in repairing and trying to seek restoration collectively, we're going to have to be really, really committed to internal healing, wholeness, health, um, addressing trauma so that we can show up and be present with each other and vulnerable, no matter what, even if it's an enemy that we're loving um, or a brother that we're reconciling with, right? Like depending on the relationship. And then, and, and there's something about this process of stepping into, of, of our ugliness, of our brokenness, of our sin um, exposed collectively, that we are being confronted with the violence that we keep perpetuating in, mm-hmm. in the church, in our nation. And, and the weak, the, those on the margins, the weakest among us, those who maybe experienced the most cost, um, somehow in the kingdom, God um, uses those times also to invite them into greater healing and and, and hearing their stories re-narrated in the light of the gospel. Um, and there's invitation, right, for everyone to kind of grow and mature, repent, confess, lament, and move towards Christ, but, but, that, but in that move towards each other. So it is a real, it's not, no one wants, we never want to be in seasons of suffering, but God really does use it to warm us in powerful ways. Danae, can you talk a little bit? I mean, the Sunday, the Sunday after George Floyd died and was murdered, um, we do prayers of the people at my church. And during the confession time of that, um, I was very emotional and like prayed in front of our congregation for God to forgive me for my racism. And there was something that Sunday that several people in our church like came up and like, I can't believe that you like publicly said that. I'm like, well, it's true. There, there are parts. It's just true. It's true of all of us. I mean, and we need to be, have eyes open to that. Um, Mm -hmm. but as time has gone on, Mm -hmm. right. Months later, I feel like that. And I'm just trying to be real honest and vulnerable. And I'm, there's a little bit of shame in this too. So I'm just, as I'm sharing this, but I don't, I don't have that intense emotion mm, yeah. and yet it's still true. Mm-hmm. So help me, help me know yeah. um, as a white pastor, mm-hmm. um, how do I keep that in the forefront? How do I see people better? How, how mm-hmm. do I um, love people more fully in that when there's not a crisis, when there's not a murder that's on the news? Mm-hmm. I love that question. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you're echoing what a lot of people feel. So I think what's interesting is um, when Ahmaud Aubrey was murdered and then Breonna Taylor. So a lot of the book that I have coming, I wrote in that week between um, what after they were murdered before George Floyd's murder. And it was like every summer, every summer for eight or nine years, we gathered all the black pastors in our city and done this, we've lamented and very, and there's just, there's sometimes white leaders participate and lament with us, um, but it's never, it's never been beyond that. And I think 2019 was a year of real just loss of like everything that we've done to work towards growing, um, co- you know, collaborative relationships across the nation, across the city with black, brown and white leaders. It's like falling apart, right? People are like minority leader, people of color leading ministry, um, like white churches that tried have given up. Everyone's going so slow. Like it just kind of, it was a whole year of lament, but every summer these murders are happening and they're hitting the news. But it's like, since Donald Trump got elected, it kind of like fell off the radar for a lot of the evangelical Hmm. churches we were working with. And so when that, when Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor were murdered and it hit the news, people of color had this like collective lament and I think there was like, I think there was across the board shock that George Floyd erupted into what it did. And I think part of why it did is because of COVID. I think people hmm. were exhausted. We've all gone through a collective season of anxiety and fear and unknowing. And so people were raw and ready to see with different eyes. Um, but I think the backlash also was, 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 was part of that as well, right? Some of the severe hmm. backlash to that sorrow and that lament. And so 
I think one of the, I think all along, the only way I think we're able to stay in it is to have covenantal relationships with people who suffer. And so Mm -hmm. this is why it's not even just having, um, relationships with other pastors and leaders of color, but also, you know, people currently living in poverty and positioning ourselves to learn and receive from them, um, and build, you know, this, this idea of solidarity is a lot of, a lot of Latin American theology doesn't talk about unity. It talks about solidarity. And I think that practice of like, how do we orient our lives, our time, our calendar, our pastoral ministry to be impacted by the aches and pains of those around us? Well, we talk a lot in Phoenix about like, where are the places of pain and suffering in our city? And we should, we are, we need to be so present there that when things erupt once a year, every other year, we're like the first people to get the call because we've been so present for so long. Um, so I think it's like, I think it's really rethinking our habits. Um, I think the emotion, emotion comes and goes, right? Like I think that, that the, the sorrow um, serves purposes at different points of our prayer and practices, but it's really being able to confess and have habit change, have behavior change, and then rethink how we're spending our resources and energy and, and cap, you know, social capital to try to bring about change. Yes. I'd love to hear you talk more about unity versus solidarity and not versus maybe, but there's a, there's a distinction to solidarity. That's not, that's not inherent in unity. Could you maybe uh, tease that out a little bit more? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of movement in different cities. I've seen, we'll say, you know, people, it's easy to get Christians to talk about church unity. The church should be unified. Let's get everyone Mm -hmm. to do this event or sign this paper or do this thing. And those serve purposes, you know, they're not complete. I don't want to be too critical of them, but they tend to be like, when you go to those things all across the nation, very rarely are people of color there. And, and, and if they are, often we're invited to like advise and give some tidbits, not necessarily uh, to shape it. And, and this happens in all denominations. It doesn't matter, you know, the tradition, the denomination, it just seems like again and again, there's just these consistent patterns. Yeah. And I think um, unity, you know, evangelicals and Americans are good at, we can unite and divide around ideas and statements um, solidarity is like behavior and practices, right? So my mm-hmm. husband and I, you know, he's like went, went to reformed seminary. I grew up Assemblies of God. Um, and so our, our whole first year of dating, we had all kinds of massive theological discussions on big <laughs> issues. And um, we still do. And uh, and we, we had this point where we're like, you know what? Our marriage, we don't have to agree to have unity and to practice uh, living in union with each other, even in our s- serious differences. What does it look like to behave united? You know, so we figure that out in parenting, right? You figure that out in leadership. Um, it doesn't, but like, but the church somehow talks about unity as like, we share the same idea. We're going to like make, you know, we're going to argue over this theological nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, but like our behavior doesn't look unified. And so, I think practices, we talk a lot about developing like table fellowship practices. Like how are we creating hospitable space for each other and, um, and, and act and and acting out hospitality in the very way we show up in our relationships um, across different denominations or parts of the city or ethnicities. Yes. Yeah. As as you share that, it's so helpful. I, I, I know that Jesus was doing more than this. But I, I, the the thought occurred to me for the first time that maybe there was something going on um, with Jesus spending so much time with what's referred to as tax collectors and sinners, mm-hmm. um, whom people, scholars like Aubrey Hendricks have just said, that's basically the poor people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically the economically and theologically disenfranchised people in Israel. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you, you have basically two scenes in Jesus's ministry, maybe three. One when he's with his disciples. But the two main ones are he's either at a at at a very important person's house, or in a uh, in some sort of scholarly sort of interaction, mm-hmm. and he's eating, drinking, and healing poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wonder, 
like, did Jesus need to have that solidarity to keep him grounded and rooted in in this? Like, why are we working for reconciliation and justice? Hmm. And it's it's not just this. It's not just this. I'm staying one step ahead in the honor game that these powerful people are playing with me, mm-hmm. but. Um, you see that he gives himself to these things like all night sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And you know, if anybody has good boundaries, it's Jesus. Can I get an amen? Mm-hmm. Like yep. he's got good boundaries, but I wonder if he doesn't need have this existential ontological need for what you're describing. Unless I have solidarity with the people that I came to preach good news to, it's not good news to them. Right. Right. And, and I wonder sometimes how solidarity with, those in the margins actually becomes good news to the wealthy, right? So part, of, the part of what is being confronted is like, yes, Jesus was there to save and reconcile them to God, but part of their healing was their capacity to be united to the rest of their body, like to be remembered to the body of Christ. And so there's this like interplay between you know, when we identify with the humble and the lowly and those who are who've been put cast aside and we remind and we're reminding each other of the full humanity that's present. And then we're confronting and, and then that that humanity confronts the powerful and says, you're only human, you're not God. We're all being reshaped and reformed into the one body of Christ. Um, yes. And it's very healing. So like there's there's something I think a lot in what's been really powerful i think in my own journey is realizing there's you there's this mystical holy relationship we have with christ that's very special but it but when it's really healing and transforming it's allowing us to have deeper union with each other and that actually we begin to taste the kingdom of god and and experience intimacy with christ through greater intimacy with each other. So we talk about how hard breaking through this wall of racism and getting, you know, we're, we're in a really hard season as the church having this exposed, but on the other side of it, when you, when you experience that depth of community um, and you, you, you sin deeply against each other and you're, and you confess and you forgive one another and you have reconciliation, it's like, I mean, it's, it's, you can't explain it, right? It's like that you're, you're, you're tasting the kingdom of God. I mean, it's the pearl of great price. You'll sell anything to have, that that experience of God in an, you know, the, the community, the fellowship that you can have with Christ with each other. Does that make? I don't know if that makes sense, but there's just totally. this like there's just our relationship with God is so deeply connected to our relationship with people, and He does so much healing and rest, rest restoration through um, allowing us to uh, re- reconcile and engage with each other. Yes. I, I think I think you just need to preach that on Sunday morning. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. that's what I, the whole time yeah. you were talking. I just thought, Amen, Amen, Amen. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our ten-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love, and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you, so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission, and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. I was struck too as you were sharing that, um, Danae. Like, th- 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 there's dozens of times. I'm 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 hedging. I wonder. I want to qual. I want to qualify that like even more. There's at least dozens of times when when God or and or Jesus, just the scriptures say you're you're saying Lord Lord, but um, you're you're not doing the things that make for justice. Right. You're, you're honoring me with your lips. You're saying, I love God and I'm making these sacrifices or I'm, but I, but I actually didn't give you a drink when you were thirsty. Right. Uh, and what struck me as you're talking is the opposite isn't true. Right. 
Meaning, God never says, you are feeding the poor like crazy, but do you, lo- do you really love me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something in that that I think scandalizes the evangelical spirituality and theology. Yeah. Because yeah. we, want, we want this nice linear sort of path from first you give your heart to God, and mm-hmm. then you're able to live faith with other people. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about all these injunctions about separating justice and social activism from the gospel. And I think they're legitimate. Mm-hmm. I think they're legitimate. I just want to say, though, I don't see that happening in Scripture ever. Yeah. Right. And so I wonder if our concern for it needs to be recalibrated towards Scripture's focus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, are we scared of the ditch we're least likely to fall into is what I'm saying. Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. It's like all year long. It's like, you know, don't, don't be, don't become liberal or progressive. And it's like, well, but where's the question on the other side of it? And what is the other ditch? You know, um, what happens yes. when we, what happens when we keep dividing something that God has said is one. I mean, that's a very, it's a very serious thing to do. And if, yes. if, if Christ, if Christ is, is the embodiment of truth, and he is reenacting the kingdom all throughout his life, um, right up to the death and resurrection, and and we're and we're and we're getting windows into the kingdom of God through the way in which he moves and his posture and his tone and his words and his life and his healings. Um, then why would we be surprised that when you go when when when, when I'm doing work with people in the justice world who are not yet Christian, they are literally they're inserting their vocation into hells on earth right they're like they're deciding mm-hmm. to go in and they're drawing on common grace and gifts that god has given them and they're trying to bring that into you know places of hell on earth to see restoration why would we be surprised that they wouldn't begin to have an um that they wouldn't be able to see things about the truth of god and the kingdom that the religious, you know, the older brother who's been stuck in um, their ways for a long time would have would have a hard time seeing. And I think that's mm. when we say that the judgment begins with the household of God. Like when we look mm. at, I think the, yeah, it's just it's it's easier for me to have sometimes to talk to my friends who aren't Christians who are in the justice world. They can describe what Christian life should look like, and they get as angry about Christians being against justice. Um, because because it's like well isn't this what Jesus is about? And I'm like why are we why yeah we should be the first to to be proof of, of what Christ has called us to be. That's interesting. I have a neighbor. I'm actually looking at her house right now across the window, and um, she does not know Jesus. And uh, this summer there were we had several conversations, and she she knows I'm a pastor, but um, she actually said to me, you know, I think your family is a little bit different. Because it seems like you uh, celebrate and love all people. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. what in the world? But yeah. but it's to what you're saying, right? right. I mean, like people have yeah. this idea of Christians and, and they put them in a box. And yeah. unfortunately, uh, we have not modeled Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have not yeah. modeled Christ and how right. we live. Yeah. Right. We come, right. We come by it honestly. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's where it's like, there's, you know, loving the poor confronts our idols and there's, it's very hard to be an American and resist a materialistic, consumeristic, individualistic life. Even, even if you're, you know, even if you're trying as hard as you can, it's like, it's like, it's like swimming against the current of water and you Mm. have to have community and confession and reconciliation to do it to do it. And, and, and I think it has to be done from a place of love and really seeing that you're actually, you know, following the grain of God's law of love. Um, it's not just obedience for the sake of obedience, because you, you know, you have like first Corinthians 13, I can love the poor, but if I don't have love, it's, it's nothing. Right. Yeah. And you see yes. that there's all kinds of like self-righteous and I, I've been that person, self-righteous, justice yes. workers, judgmental, critical, but it's like, no, when you begin to, when you're on the other side of it and you're experiencing the kingdom of God and Jesus is being revealed to you in the prisoner, in the hungry, um, and you're being actually ministered to, like if Jesus is the prisoner, 
that means you who are visiting are being ministered to by the, mm. the sex offender yes. or by the you know person on death row. It, it's like it's not we're not here to go fix you and help you. It's like you're Jesus. You're like like Jesus is hidden in you. Yes. Like what 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 am I? So I think when when we begin to have those shifts and we taste that type of relationship, um, it's it's transformative. And and I and I absolutely believe our lonely, isolated, anxious world would block to God's people if we embodied the message that we believe. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Well, Danae, uh, one of the reasons I was so keen on talking to you is because I think you you referenced this earlier that you'd gotten together in the summer and prayed with other leaders in Phoenix. And I think that some of those prayers, if I'm not mistaken, have found their way into this compendium, this book that you've written. Um, and the title is Healing Prayers and Meditations to Resist a Violent World. And then... Um, Another subtitle is For People Weary of Injustice. Can you give us maybe the backstory of how you came to write these prayers, what they were born out of, and and how you decided to put them all together in this book? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I my leadership journey has been um, non-traditional. And uh, I, well, I stepped into a world of... Um, traditional pastors and, and leaders, right? And I didn't fit, I had none of the credentials and um, definitely was kind of coming from, from as an outsider. And what happened was it really, and, and the desire was to begin to help work towards reconciliation, justice. Um, and it, and my strength, kind of my, maybe my prophetic side that can easily tell everyone what's wrong and what's broken. Um, that got put, good, that got put to yes. good use working with evangelical pastors. Um, at that time, I was the only female, all males, never had worked, you know, never had worked with a woman mm. apart from administrative roles. So it was, it, it, it confronted a lot of things in the system, but also in my own story. And it brought so much to the surface of my own mm. past pain. And so, um, this the there there what this journey that I've been on has been around wanting to say okay if, if, what does it mean to be a restorative leader and to not just build leadership teams or ministries or church or help plant churches that are doing restoration um, but actually who we are internally is in integrity and we're we're showing up and we're we're being honest about our brokenness but also cultivating healthy healthy lives, healthy teams, healthy, uh, communities. How do all these mm. things link together? And so that mm. just was years of prayer and, and there's, oh my God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. So, um, really no. pray, I think really I've spent the last four years studying the prayer practices of the black church and just sitting in a lot of prayers and reading of people who've suffered. And it's been really convicting, um, to see the lengths people have gone to forgive. And so, the book mm. is, um, you know, the first section of it is, was, you know, coming through my journey of being maybe on the more prophetic side, lots of lament of saying, you know mm. what, actually I need to start, I, there needs to be words that are given to what we're missing. It's not just like that sin is, is it's not just that there's a brokenness in the body of Christ. We don't really understand what a healthy, flourishing body or church family looks like. And so we're talking yes, about the brokenness, but we're so detached from the vision of the kingdom. So that's kind of the first section is just like, if we really were experiencing depth of oneness and intimacy with Christ and each other, what, who would we be? Um, mm. The second section is all repentance and laments and feeling like that vision of the kingdom, I think should give us a longing to have even more of it. Um, and, the, and the sadness and the sorrow of where it's not should be so much uh, stronger. And then the last section mm. is realizing, you know, um, in, in all of this, it just reveals and exposes our stories and how God is at work to restore and heal us through that. And, um, and mm. through violence and through broken relationships and through all the ways that the world is not meant to be, um, God is at work to make us in uh, more into the image of Christ and to help us 
move towards um, others, that we can actually discover the courage required to be restorative leaders in environments that aren't open to restoration. And so, yeah, those are kind of the three parts. It's, it's a lot of, it's art. It's more, I've, I've not, it's my first, I'm not, I've never thought of myself as an artist, but um, a lot of this just kind of, yeah, it came out of a lot, a big season of prayer and trying to integrate external mission to my internal world and story. It is beautiful. I mean, for anyone listening, you, uh, I read um, several and my heart was like, yes, like okay. it, it, uh, it was something that I was able to participate in as I read it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm guessing yeah. that that was part of your heart mm-hmm. in that. But um, I I may not have the words that I know to pray or to lament, but your words helped me be able to do that. And that um, just thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, that was really the I think that was really the heart was for years. I keep saying, how do we create how do we develop leaders to do this work? And I think that book was this was kind of the first attempt. to say, I don't I just think we have to pray together to be these people. Like it's, it has to act as parts of who we are that we don't need. Really the spirit of God has to do a deep work. And he's of course using community and all kinds of things for that to happen. But um, prayer is, I think what's going to form us uh, deeper. Yes. Danae, I asked you beforehand if you would be willing to, to read one of your prayers and you were amenable to that. Would you, um, would you do that? Sure. This one is called Sacred Union. At first I met you in the mystery of holy transformation. When I exchanged my robes for your dirty rags, glorious was that day. Remember how we walked, just you and I, through dark valleys and raging seas to bring you here. Because it's not enough to save you from damnation, eternal separation, but to know me is to know my joy and the fellowship inside me. Union is no abstraction, divorced from embodied action. But as you enter deeper into my communion, great healing will be found in the treasures I've hidden within the brethren all around. To know me more intimately, I now need you to trust that I am not satisfied with merely private encounter, but because I want you fully seen, I brought you to this place to encounter others face to face. No need to hide like you they once were lost, but now they're found and inhabit me. And there are depths of you I want to reach, and I will do it through the flesh of my beloved saints. There is something much greater than euphoria you have known in moments, and it's to be deeply seen and see within my sacred union. Be a fellow sinner, there is no need to hide or protect. It is within this fellowship that I will fight for you to be seen by each other. It is here that I will contend for your soul to emerge, content, receiving and given love within my sacred union. Mm. Um, One of the things as I looked through these movements, um, I love the way you've structured this, Danae, that you started with prayers like sacred union that give us, that populate our minds and our imaginary with, a tell us, you know, something, something that's not just looking back or looking around, but something that's looking towards something and and is drawing us towards it with this uh, ever, ever gently powerful uh, allure, which is you know new creation and being and the consummation of all things in Christ, and then planting planting sort of your imaginary stake there and praying from there, and that's something I feel like. No one ever taught me how to pray like that. Mm. No one really taught me how to pray like that. In a, so, so as I read your book, I felt like, oh yeah, I felt like, Danae, uh, this could be awkward. I felt like you were you became the mother I didn't know I needed mm. in teaching me how to pray like that. You know? Um, and we, I think more so than any other thing, right? Uh, we need mothers and fathers to actually teach teach us how to pray to mm. to mentor us in prayer mm. um yeah so mm. thank you thank you and i thank think too then the middle sec yeah the middle section too of just the um 
you know, you have a prayer for, um, gosh, what was the title? You have a prayer for boldness, prayer for the bold and -hmm. prayer for the timid. Mm -hmm. You remember this better than me. Yes. Praying prayer for the bold to speak truth to power and prayer for the timid to speak truth to power. And can I, can I ask how that emerged and what, why, why those two separate prayers felt significant for you to include? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, have, you know, I, I am more on the bold, the bold side of things. So I've gone in all, all, all guns blazing. Um, and have over the last eight years had real sorrow when I, even when there's Mm -hmm. breakthrough, but I can look at my heart or my words or my side processing to a friend. And I just see um, how much of my ego was wrapped up in saving the day and, and being the one to say, this is not how it should be. Right. And it's like, it's, it, 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 it distracted from, um, from what I think God, you know, God still used it, but it's just there. My, so much of my ego was is wrapped up in, I'm going to be, I'm going to yeah. lunch every muscle and run through that brick wall if I have to. And, um, I think part of my journey was especially, you know, going through the the division, the division at our church was saying, I want to have, I, God is going to have to give me empathy and love for people who are, um, writing these nasty emails and spreading these rumors and making these, Mm. you know, costly decisions. Um, I, I, otherwise I'm going to become a bitter, angry, uh, person and I, and I don't want that. Right. So a lot of the, my, my prayer on the boldness side was, um, really wanting to love deeper people who've harmed us, wanting the courage for enemy love. And I think just realizing, okay, I think of myself as strong and I can enter into anything and and tough it up. But actually when when you ask me to love my enemies, it exposes my deepest fears, my greatest insecurities. I'm not actually that strong. I'm just kind of being bold to protect myself. Right. Yeah. Right. To like hide it. And so that was one. And then I think there's just the reality of like, you know, I, on the timid side of it, um, realizing I've been in, I've been in so many settings where, especially the last seven years where I'm the first woman or, um, one of the only people of color or, um, you know, a bridge into a different network of people. And, um, the way white led hierarchy works um, I don't actually think it's a necessarily an individual's fault, even though they're responsible if they're the leader. Um, but this, the system is so narcissistic and it just crushes everyone. Like it crushes the leaders themselves, but especially those of us who like don't fit the, don't fit the mold. And so having been through so many exchanges of sitting in church leadership, and working with so many pastors and denominations and feeling the consistent heat of um, just, you're not enough. You don't fit You're, you know, you're, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're here for a specific purpose. It's transactional. Um, I think just realizing there's a lot of timid, I, even though I think I'm bold, there's so much timidity um, in certain environments and things I'm protecting. And so just saying, okay, if I'm going to be present in places of power, Um, I need to be able to acknowledge both the timid side and the bold side and both have different sins and different ways that we can uh, hide. And and if we can confess those to Christ, it allows us to represent him so much, so much better in these places. I have a lot to learn from you. I'm so grateful. Um, Just Mm -hmm. in, in, in hearing you talk, I can see how the Lord is worked in you and working through you. And that is like, for me as a woman pastor, I need to hear that. I need to, um, to see that in other people, um, and to be spurred on and challenged and convicted. And, um, yeah, thank you so much for letting, for letting the Holy spirit work in and through you. It's really beautiful. Thank you, Christy. Thank you. Yeah. Danae, uh, we need to let you go because you've been so generous with your time. We didn't get a chance to talk about Surge Network much, and we also want to um, – your your website is restorativeleaders.com, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, can you plug the other pluggables that you have for people to connect with you or find you yeah, online? Yeah, sure. Yeah, if you're a social media person, I post on social media. Uh, 
my name's pretty unique, so it's easy to find me, Danae Pierre, um, Facebook, Twitter. Um, but yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of, I'm not a big promoter of things. That's yeah. Cool. That's, but, uh, yeah, I love, we'll for, I'd love for you to check out the website, um, order the book. If, uh, there's, uh, we also put a lot of the excerpts on the book. So of, of the book yes. up there. So if you don't um, want to order one, um, then yeah, you can, you can see the art and, and read some of the prayers. Yep. We'll put that website in the show notes. And I just want to put a pin in this, Danae. Um, if you ever feel generous uh, with your time again with us, because uh, I know you have lots of things you're doing. That last thing you said about white hierarchical spaces and the ways that they make a bold woman of color feel timid. Mm. This is this is not something that white, um, this isn't a surprise to either of you, <laughs> but I'm just going to own it. This is not something that white men know about mm. and can see. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. we we just don't know. Yeah. Um, I was talking to um, I was talking to a, a black man earlier today, and he's six six three forty, and he's <laughs> talking about how, um, and he's married to like a five foot one um a Latino Latina woman, and he was talking about how his size is he's always accommodating for it. And he's always noticing how his what his size is doing in different places and his size with his skin color, with his gender, mm-hmm. and how all those layers do things in spaces. And I recalled this um, friend of mine who played offensive lineman in college. He was the same size, 6'6", six, mm-hmm. six, 300 pounds, but he was white. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to him about how he had leadership capital I didn't have because of his size, and he didn't believe me. Hmm. And I was and like white men are so ignorant to yeah. what our bodies hmm. and skin do in environments. Anyway, open invitation, Danae, to I come love, back. I would love to talk. I could talk all day about this topic. <laughs> and share some stories about it. All right. Well, I'll hit you up then. I'll give you a few months of a break, but I'll yeah. hit you up. I would love to have a maybe a panel discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, where a number of um, women can just share what that is like yeah, and, and how they interact with that. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. Thanks so much, Danae. Blessings you on you and you. Your, Thanks, your husband and the Surge Network. Um, God be with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.